Amen. Our deacons have some cards for you. We passed them out last week. There were two. One is a prayer card. And if you'd like a prayer card or an invitation card for these meetings coming up with Todd Spockleb, please just raise your hand as the deacons uh, move back toward the back of the sanctuary. And um, let's be praying every day, right? Every day that God would impress us with someone, somewhere, whom we can invite that he would move in a mighty way in our city, in our town, to bring about a, a great blessing for the kingdom of God. So, in fact, let's pause just for a moment and pray as we start our study together. Father in heaven, we pray now that you would not only speak through Taj Pakleb and do a mighty work in our midst when he comes here in, in March, but that you'll speak to us today, that you'll move in our own hearts for your kingdom and for your glory and for our salvation is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. A website named Fast Times posed a question that I'd like to start with today. What's the greatest logo or what's the greatest brand message of all time? They say that every day the average person gets bombarded with upwards, upwards of 5,000 brands every day. And every brand, as you know, wants to make an impression. It wants something to be tapped in your soul to make a connection there. And here's, our, here's a few that they say are among the greatest. Here's the Nike swoosh. You may know that this logo um, is, it kind of feels like speed and power and acceleration. It was actually done by a... a graphic design student that was getting paid $2 an hour and was paid $35 for this logo. And this is Amazon's logo. This logo, as you know, oftentimes logos have hidden meanings. If you look carefully, that line goes from A to Z. And that's what you can order from Amazon, anything from A to Z. And it's also a smile. So, uh, and then have you ever noticed that inside the FedEx logo there's an arrow and that arrow represents speed you see it there between the e and the x i never noticed that before but that's a good thing for a delivery uh, uh, enterprise to have movement speed with accuracy logistics and then this one baskin and robbins uh, has 31 wonderful flavors and in the BR, you see it, 31. I never even noticed that before, but there's the 31 flavors right there. And the next one doesn't even have a name attached with it. But what would happen if all of these places all around the world were closed tomorrow? There would be withdrawal. <laughs> and this one, McDonald's Golden Archers, depicts with style the letter M. And by the way, the Business Insider says that this is the most recognizable logo in all the world. McDonald's, Golden Archers. And Google, well, Google is just Google. You maybe notice that. But they do change it every day when you go on to do a search. And so it's an ever-changing daily logo. And then the apple, there's a bite out of that. And that denotes the spread of knowledge, according to Apple. A good logo it's not just memorable, it's compelling. A good, good logo is one that makes you want to say, 
I've got to have that. I've got to do that. I've got to be a part of that. That's what a logo is supposed to do. So I want to ask you this morning, what is the greatest logo ever of all time? And that question brings us to a critical observation and a start of our study today. We are in a series, as you know. Uh, we've been in the book of Corinthians. And for, for 2,000 years, the primary image associated with the Jesus movement is the cross. The cross. Two pieces of wood fastened together to kill slaves and criminals. The cross is the Christian logo. That's our brand. It's kind of strange, isn't it? Think of it just for a moment. Other religions have much more inviting, kindlier logos than ours. The Star of David, the Crescent Moon, the Lotus Flower, these images are light and beauty and, and nature. Now, if you were charged with designing a symbol to attract people's attention, men and women around the world, to be part of a movement, do you imagine that any marketing expert would recommend the means of execution as that logo? It's become so familiar that in our day we don't even think of it anymore. We've sort of become desensitized to the fact of what a shocking image it actually is. Just think of this for a moment. What if Pacific Power or maybe Columbia REA chose an electric chair for their Lego, uh, for their logo, and they put this phrase on it: "The power is on." <laughs> that wouldn't go with it, okay? Not at all. How likely is it that artists would make paintings or cups or refrigerator magnets with guillotines on them? Strange. How strange, even more strange, that graves across the world are marked by crosses more than anything else. A cross. And it's unthinkable that graves would be marked by anything else. Can you imagine them? Any other form of of execution, like gallows or knives or, or guns. Can you imagine a grave being marked that way? But this did not happen by accident. From the beginning of time, God knew that this would be the foremost, the most powerful image in human history. The cross. So the obvious question is, why? Why would God do such a thing? Why a cross? That's what we're going to look at this morning in our study. We've been in the book for four weeks. This is our fourth in 1 Corinthians. We started it a month ago. And as you recall, Corinth was a powerful city. It was a, it was a powerful business hub and a central, a cultural center and, and a hub of commerce and trade. It was sort of like, this, as we've said, the Silicon Valley of the ancient world. It was culturally, religiously, ethnically very diverse. And people living there were obsessed with status. And if you think a cross is strange to us, it would have been exceptionally strange to them. 
a cross. The cross is something that marks Christian faith, and it's utterly unique among the world's religions, the cross. Ivan Blazin, in his commentary, he was a former teacher of mine at the seminary, and he has a book on 1 Corinthians, and this is what he says. Ivan Blazin, the conception of God and his salvation as revealed in the story of Christ and the cross is totally unique. Not only that, but from a worldly wise point of view, it's downright foolish. Salvation by believing in a crucified Messiah? Ridiculous. Until the gospel of Jesus Christ, no one in in the history of human imagination had conceived of such a thing as the worship of a crucified human. Never. But God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, from the beginning of time, before sin, before creation, before this whole thing was conceived, from time immemorial, they conceived this plan that would be the only way that they could save humankind. Jesus, like it says in the book of Revelation, chapter 13, verse 8, he was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. From before before human time. It was Jesus who made the cross the expression of deep lostness, of human brokenness. He made it the expression of the death of humanity. And he also made the cross the measureless, self-sacrificing, suffering love of God, all in the cross. And this is the paradoxical expression. This is the paradoxical pathway to a life of victory and satisfaction and purpose and meaning and abundance. It goes far beyond that anything that Nike or McDonald's or Amazon could give you even the remotest taste of, the cross. And I have to tell you, until now, I've read parts of Corinthians, and especially this verse, 1 Corinthians 2.9, with its reference to what human beings have not seen or heard and or conceived, and I've always thought that this was a reference to the glory that we will experience in heaven and our inability to comprehend its beauty and magnificence. I don't know what you thought when you looked at this verse before. What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love it. Paul isn't talking about heaven here. I always thought he was. I've quoted it before as as an expression of what we're looking forward to. But the context is not that glorious place. The context is the way we get to glory. Paul is saying that he is absolutely captivated by the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ. And it is that which is beyond our wildest imagination what it means and the significance of it for us. Look how Paul speaks to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except, say it with me, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Christianity 
Christianity in its essence is Jesus Christ crucified. Christianity isn't about doctrinal debates. Christianity is not about theological margins. Christianity is Jesus Christ crucified. This is the center of the gospel. This is, as one commentary said, this Jesus' identity is stamped in the cross. The cross wasn't canceled by the resurrection, as important as that was. The cross wasn't canceled by Jesus' victory over death, as important as that. The cross wasn't canceled by his ascension. The cross isn't canceled by Christ's enthronement and ministry in heaven, his intercessory ministry for us. All of it is integral to the cross. The cross. Paul's own personal effort in Corinth is mirrored in this focus on the cross. He worked among them, preaching the good news of Jesus Christ, not like the esteemed and confident Greek orators did in Corinth. That wasn't Paul. Notice what he said in 1 Corinthians 2, 3, and 4. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Paul didn't work among them like other orators. Paul didn't fit into the Corinthian model. He wasn't a dynamic orator. He wasn't about impressing his listeners or swaying crowds. He wasn't playing games of of power and prestige. He wasn't about the superficial packaging that was so rampant. His speech, his actions, his life, his ministry would all align with the gospel, and that is Jesus Christ and him crucified. He said, that's what I'm all about. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Crucifixion in those days, by the way, was the most horrible, the most revolting, so degrading that you would never even mention it in polite society. Here's how one Bible commentary of N.T. Wright put it about this verse in 1 Corinthians. He said, imagine somebody at a fashionable dinner party going on, a loud, going on in a loud voice about how he'd seen rats eating the body of a dead dog in the street. That's the kind of impression you'd make by standing up in public and talking about someone being crucified. The ancient world knew a lot about execution. They knew how to do it. They knew how to execute people quickly. One fell swoop would do it. Crucifixion, however, was not merely a means of execution. That's not why they used it. They could have executed people in a much more simple and cost-effective way. Crucifixion was used because it maximized the pain. Crucifixion took hours and sometimes days for a person to die. Crucifixion was a public spectacle of torture and shame. The victim was first flogged nearly to death so that his flesh was torn away from his bones and showing his, even his organs, they say. And then the criminal was paraded to the place of execution through the most crowded streets of the town so that everyone could see for it was done for maximum attention and then the man was stripped 
completely spiked to a wooden beam and crossbars and hung there before the gaze of the curious and scoffers. That was crucifixion. That was crucifixion. A Roman writer named Seneca, who lived around Paul's time, said this, any self-respecting man would commit suicide before ever allowing himself to be crucified. Rome used crucifixion not to execute, but to humiliate and to terrify. It was for slaves. It was for rebels. It was for people who were conspiring against the government. And Jesus was a rebel. But Paul didn't attempt to minimize Jesus' apparent failure, because that's what they would have thought in Corinth. Jesus crucified. He was a failure. In fact, just the opposite. Paul highlighted Christ's crucifixion. He said in 1 Corinthians 1.22, Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach, imagine it, Christ crucified. A stumbling block, yes, and foolishness, yes, but we preach Christ crucified. It was an oxymoron. We talked about that a little bit last week. Christ meant anointed one. Crucified meant you were nobody. You were shamed and defeated. The two together just didn't make sense. It would be one thing to preach Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed leader, the wise teacher, the noble character. But Paul says we don't teach Christ Alone, we teach, we preach Christ crucified. Christ failed, shamed, defeated, humiliated, executed. 1 Corinthians 2, 2, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Why? Why, Paul? Christ crucified. Christ crucified to the crowds in Corinth meant that Jesus had been tried and he'd been found wanting. It meant that he couldn't give enough signs of his power to rally his own people to overthrow their oppressors. It meant that he couldn't plead his case with sufficient wisdom and eloquence to persuade the uh, Roman justice. It meant that he tried and he failed and he died and he lost. But to Paul, the cross wasn't failure. The cross was a redefinition of meaning, of purpose in life. To Paul, the cross was the way to human flourishing. And that's why he was so passionate about it. At the cross, I lay down my life. At the cross, I confess my sins. At the cross, I receive his life and his forgiveness. That's what the cross is about. And if you've never done that before, I'm going to invite you to do that this Sabbath. I'm going to invite you to do that. At the cross, to give up your time to give up your money, to give up your habits, 
to give up your old self and to receive a new one in Jesus Christ. I'm going to invite you to do that. Jesus was the master image maker. He told us himself that he would use this. He said in Matthew 16, 24, before he was crucified, he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross. Jesus knew it was coming. Follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Jesus chose the way of the cross. He named the way of the cross as his image before he died. Everything that is truth about God's kingdom runs through the cross. It's more than just a ticket to heaven, the cross. It's more than that. It's, it's about the reality of God's kingdom. It's about the fact that those who become servants are greatest. It's about the first becoming last. That's what the cross is. It's about, it's more blessed to give than to receive. That's what the cross is. It's, the cross is about those who seek their life will lose it. And those who lose their life, who die to themselves, will receive life. And not just life, but eternal life. That's what the cross is about. Jesus turned the cross into a weapon intended to kill God to a weapon that God would use through Jesus to kill death by dying himself on the cross. You know, every day, every day it happens. Two, it's, it happened every day of human existence almost. Two every day, 105 a minute. 56 million a year, people die today. They die every way imaginable, by violence and disaster. They die of old age. They die of sickness and disease. Last year, I read that 154 people died of selfie-related accidents, if you can imagine it. But one day, one day, a man died for you. A good man. Not just a good man. The best man. The best man died for you. He died a hard death. He died the worst death. And he died out of love for you. A very great love for you. Jesus insisted that the crucifixion was not something that somebody was doing to him. But rather, it was something that he himself cho chose. He did. All four Gospels give us that impression. Jesus said this in John 10, 18 and 19, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up. This command I received from my Father. So, the cross, at first glance, it looked like disaster and failure and humiliation. It looked like the end. But instead, 
it was sort of like the missing piece of the puzzle, if you know what I mean. Everything came together. It pulled everything together and made sense of everything. All of a sudden, the cross. In Jesus' own life and teaching, he might be called the great reverser. <laughs> he changed the cross. And he changed life. He said, he said, blessed are those who the world thinks are unblessed. Jesus said, the least are the most. He said, the poor are the rich. He said, the first are the last. He said, you must die in order to live. He said, weakness is strength. He said, serving is greatness. And now his cross becomes the ultimate great exchange. It becomes a place where the reversal happens. I come to the cross and I exchange my guilt for his innocence. My woundedness for his healing. My weakness for his strength. My brokenness for his wholeness. My death for his life. That's what happens at the cross. At the cross. Sabbath morning a few years ago, a long time ago as a matter of fact, back in the days when I used to travel between two churches and preach at one in the morning, go to the next one uh, for a second service. And uh, there was a lot of country road between those two churches and uh, I was probably going a little bit more faster than I should have. And I was passing through a ghost town. That wasn't the name of it, but it was pretty much that. And, uh, and I passed through the center of town and I began to accelerate as I made a 90 degree turn out of what I thought was the end of the town. Because I was just passing rows of vacant grain bins and empty gravel lots for egg chemical plants. And all of a sudden... I saw a blue light behind me. I quickly pulled over and rolled down my window and got out my license because I was in a hurry. I was already late. You see, I had that tendency then and I'm still struggling with it. Preaching a little bit too long. <laughs> and so I was, well, I didn't have any margin at all. <laughs> and this interruption was going to cause too much delay. And so I considered speeding up the process by getting out of my car and helping the officer by going up to his car. But I didn't. I didn't do that. <laughs> I chose wisely and I stayed put. But the minutes ticked by and I wondered if my guilt would be doubled because I was driving a Chevy Citation. <laughs> I was. They stopped making those years ago for a good reason. <laughs> but when the kindly officer stepped to my window, I could tell he was committed to making a point. Des despite the fact that I told him that I had just talked about Jesus and I was going to another place where I was going to talk about Jesus again, he handed me a ticket describing that my driving infraction and fine would ameliorate my guilt. Guilty, he said. Guilty. The cross says there's something wrong with this world. 
That's what the cross says. There's something wrong with this place. The cross says, I'm guilty. That's what it says. I'm guilty of something bigger than a traffic violation. That's what the cross says. <laughs> it says that it says that only God can do it. And he does it strangely in a cross. That's how he takes care of my guilt. Here, then, is the message. Here, then, is the meaning of the cross. At the cross, our guilt is declared pardoned. At the cross, we are set free. Jesus' friend, Peter, who, by the way, knew all about guilt <laughs> and all about the cross, said this about the crucifixion. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, get this, so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. For by his wounds you have been healed, the cross. The message of the cross is that there's something wrong with this world and it needs to be set right. We know that, don't we? We know there's something wrong. But it's something more than outside ourselves. We like to say it's outside ourselves. We like to say it's something to do with economics. We like to say it's something to do with politics or ideology or technology or biology. We like to say that some of those things will, will fix it. But it's not a, the cross is, it's not about an intellectual idea. The cross is not about a speculative system. The cross is about a wrongness, an ill will, a moral failure, not out there, but in here. It's about deceit. It's about turning a blind eye to justice. It's about bad parenting. It's about cruelty. It's about lust. It's about judgmentalism. It's about racial injustice. It's about hate. And it's not out there. It's in here. In me and in you. And the message of the cross is that God did something about that. He did something about that. And he did what no one could have ever expected or imagined. That's what the followers of Jesus came to believe about the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, everybody was guilty. Think of it just for a moment. Everyone was guilty. Pilate was guilty. He was guilty of great injustice. The Pharisees were guilty. They were guilty of envy. The soldiers were guilty. They were guilty of cruelty. The crowds, they were guilty of mockery. and Even the disciples, they were guilty, weren't they? Of course they were. Cowardice and betrayal. Everybody was guilty. Guilty, guilty, guilty. And Jesus was the only one that was innocent. And he went to the cross and allowed himself to be judged guilty so that blow would fall on him. That's the cross. And if you come to the cross and make this great exchange that I'm inviting you to do today, you don't have to go through your life anymore worrying about death, worrying about flashing lights in the rearview mirror or any other flashing lights. 
Jesus' friend, John, wrote these words. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. The blood of Jesus. That's kind of a strange picture, isn't it? I mean, we're so immune to blood these days. We don't like blood. We remove it from us as far as possible. But the writer of Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Hebrews 9, verse 22. We live, our our world is a bloodless world, right? And some people, when they look at this whole thing, find the whole thing gruesome and distasteful. That's what some people think. But the ancient world was different. The ancient world was a bloody place. It was a bloody place. People in the ancient world were vividly aware that through death, through the eating of some animal that was sacrificed or some food, dead plants that were given, that life would come. These animals and plants given up in death were life-giving. They thought, they knew that's what Basically, all world religions believe. That was the practice of offering sacrifices of dead animals and plants. And it was universal, basically universal in the world. Everybody did it. But there was a striking teaching that came through Israel, through her prophets, and through Christianity. And it was this, that ritual sacrifice is not what God really wanted from the human race. Like the psalmist said, Lord, you don't desire sacrifice or I would give it. You don't delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifice of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O Lord, you will not despise. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He gave his life. When he shed his blood, that's what he did. He gave his life. He'd offered the sacrifice that would end all sacrifices, and it did. On the cross, he became the lamb that was slain. Revelation 5, verse 6. On the cross, one man died for you. When he shed his blood, he gave his life, and he offered a sacrifice that would end all sacrifices. And this is the message of the cross. Through the cross, the grave is overthrown. The cross is a place. The cross is a place where all the great destructive powers of the universe, all the great destructive powers of sin and guilt and death, all those powers sought to crush Jesus Christ and all that is good with cruelty and hate. But they didn't realize that Jesus, that carpenter, that rabbi, that God in human flesh would absorb the hate and triumph by loving and forgiving. There are forces in this world too powerful for you, too powerful for any individual. There are political systems and broken cultures and rampant addiction spiritual forces that are real but hard to name. There are forces there. And they get people to throw away their lives 
in the most trivial way those forces do. They get people to just waste away life in front of the TV. They get people to, to use porn. They get people to numb themselves with drink. They get people to worship money and tolerate deception. Those forces get people to cherish bitterness and live cynically and all until they die as just a shadow of what God wanted them to be. But Paul says that in the cross, those forces, those powers met their match. In the cross. In the cross, Jesus Christ absorbed that suffering and still loved with a love stronger than the power to inflict hatred and pain. That's the cross. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 8, none of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. No, they didn't understand what was going on. Of course they didn't. They would never have crucified him. They could stop his lungs from breathing, but they couldn't stop his heart from loving. They didn't know that on the cross, death died. Hate died, sin died, and love won on the cross. So that's what I'm asking you to do today. Exchange, the great exchange. All my defeats, all your, your defeats for one great victory. Jesus' victory for you. One other thing about the cross and Jesus' death there. It always brings us to a decision. That's why I'm asking you today for a decision. The cross is a crossroads, isn't it? It is a crossroads. Like no other death, no other death in human history has been like this, but it is in Christ. And it faces us with a decision. What am I going to do? What am I going to do about the cross of Jesus Christ? Some people reject it and say it's just a message of folly. Some people procrastinate and, and find ways to distract themselves. But some people, some people say yes. That's what I want you to do today, to say yes. Some people come to the cross and they bend their knee and they give their heart. And I want you to do that today. Would you? Would you? To make that great exchange, his life for yours. Paul said it. I've, I've been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This can be, this Sabbath can be your crucifixion with Jesus day. How about it, huh? I am crucified with Christ. How about saying that with me? Huh? Would you say that with me? I am crucified with Christ. Say it again. I am crucified with Christ. We are. I'm no longer in charge of my life. I have given my identity, my purpose, my hope. It's all found in Jesus. And I ask him to forgive me through the cross and become my guide, my companion, my friend, my savior, my advocate. You can do that today. Now, you may have already done that. So you don't need to do it again because accepting Christ is sort of like marriage. You only need to do it once. But if you want to renew your commitment, if you want to renew your devotion, renew your love, that'd be good. 
That's good to do that over and over. But it may be that you've never in your life made that great exchange. Today is your day. Today is your day. I'm crucified with Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, today, in the quietness of the sanctuary or wherever, wherever we are as we worship you, we're saying to you, yes, yes. We're accepting that amazing gift you've given that us through Jesus Christ on the cross, that great exchange where our sins are taken by him, our debt, our guilt, our pain, all our suffering, everything that we deserve, he took for us. And we're accepting, Lord, today, your salvation, your mercy, your grace. In the quietness of this sanctuary, with every head bowed, every eye closed, would you like to say to your Lord, whether you're doing it again or for the first time, would you like to say yes to the cross of Jesus Christ today? Raise your hand if you'd like to say that. You see the hands and hearts of every person here in this place. And as we worship you, Lord, so, Lord, take our lives. Use them for your glory and your purpose. And we will give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.